replacement theology makes the mistake of failing to see what Paul's addressing in Romans 9 through 11, mm-hmm. that God has temporarily set aside the Jewish people. He's chastising them. And then they fail to see the restoration of Israel as God's covenant people, mm-hmm. right? That's, I think, the, the mistake that's made. Yeah. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. The word supersessionism comes from the English phrase to supersede and from the Latin word sedeo, meaning to sit. So supersedeo or supersede is when one thing supplants or replaces another. Supersessionism, or replacement theology, is the belief that the universal Christian church has replaced ancient Israel and has become God's true Israel, having replaced his covenant with the Jewish people with a covenant with the church. So replacement theology has most often been associated with Eastern Orthodox traditions, Roman Catholics, and Protestant churches for much of uh, Christian history throughout time. And so uh, you'll often see this doctrine popping up in those contexts. But for millennia, there have been many who have protested the replacement assertions. As dispensationalists, uh, as biblical literalists, as we like to believe that, that we are, how we approach scripture, how should we view replacement theology? How should we understand Israel in light of what the Bible says? How does our theology impact our perspective of Israel throughout history and in the midst of Israel's current turmoil? For this important topic, I've invited Sam Miles, president of the Living Faith Bible Institute, to help us better understand and to grasp the theological expression that is often called supersessionism. And so with that, I want to say welcome, Sam. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good to see you. It's good to be seen. Uh, you've got to, you've got to teach in about an hour and a half. Okay, right? we better get to so it. So we we have to get to it. We got to start getting this down. But it's good. Yeah. I'm glad that you that you joined us for this. Yeah, it is a really important yeah. topic mm-hmm. and timely. I think. Yeah. I think that we probably should have covered this a long time ago. There's so much to talk about in terms of theology and and what the Bible says about about things like this. Yeah, but with everything that's happening, we've got a good backdrop for why we need to talk about it. I think you're right. So, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, let's just start where we need to start and, and just address why is this topic so pressing today? Like, wh- why is this important in this cultural moment? It's all over the news right now um, with the attack by Hamas on Israel on October 7th. Uh, what's, I think, shocking to so many people is the level of support, very very aggressive support for Mm -hmm. Hamas, which is a terrorist organization who they, I mean, they rip people out of their homes and killed them, burning babies. I mean, this is a terrorist organization. And all captured on film, by the way. All on film. It's shocking. I mean, just horrific. Okay. And the the support for this terrorist organization is just mind blowing. Mm -hmm. There's a, a trend on TikTok right now where uh, young people are discovering Bin Laden's uh, letter to America. Mm-hmm. I think that was in 02. Yeah. And he's explaining why the terrorist attack on 9-11. And, and uh, the, summer re- the summer response, if I could summarize it this way, of the upcoming generation is, well, so U.S. hegemony, well, that takes a lot. I mean, that takes a lot of brutality and conquest to maintain, if you're going to be an occupier, if you're going to be the policeman of the world, mm-hmm. well, colonizers, what what did you expect? Uh, you had it coming. And that same logic is applied to Israel today with the October 7th, 2023 attack. So you've got the world and a growing number of churches. They don't view Israel as God's covenant people. No. Uh, the view is they're, the Israeli nation are colonizing occupiers that just simply well, they just got what was coming to them on October mm-hmm. 7th. Why? Well, because there shouldn't even be a state of Israel now, right? right? That's that's the view. And so this didn't come out of nowhere. You know, the church has been dropping the ball on this issue. More and more churches over the last several years have been jumping on the, the BDS bandwagon, yeah. you know, boycott, divest, sanction Israel. 
why blaming what they're doing is blaming the entire Middle East conflict on the well on Israel's occupa- occupation of Palestine. Yeah, there wouldn't be a problem if Israel wasn't a state. Yeah, right. And so it's no wonder that anti-Israel rhetoric and people calling for the removal is at it's at an all-time high over the last eighty years. I mean, today, what you and I are seeing. Uh, in terms of the response to Israel, okay, we're seeing, we're witnessing the same thing that our grandparents and our great grandparents saw in the 20 years leading up to World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable to see it in our time, our generation, just the massive amount of worldwide support for the destruction of the state of Israel, right? Anti Israel sentiment, demonstrations, uh, right now they're worldwide, they're very large. Yeah, on university uh, campuses and yeah. urban settings. Yeah, uh, some of these gatherings are measured in the hundreds of thousands now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just I'm um, kind of unbelievable. Yeah, I never thought I'd see it. To be honest I, with you, I, like, well, we knew it was coming biblically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but to actually we'll to. see it is a whole other thing. It's it's yeah. pretty amazing and, yeah. and shocking yeah. because it really feels like, especially you know, if you grew up in a context where you were taught um, to value Israel, which we're going to get to. It, it, and, and to know that, like, my grandfather fought in World War II for this very reason. Same. Yeah. And so now I'm like, I'm looking at it, and it's, it feels like the whole world is blind. Yeah. Like, just a few generations, yeah. and it's like we've forgotten everything that's we come We forgot before. our history. Yeah. We're right back where we were it's pretty bizarre. years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it's what's going on. I mean, it's all over yeah. the news. Uh, You've got people marching. You've got young people, especially very driven by this because they've been kind of taught this this oh, yeah. c- colonizer rhetoric, this mm-hmm. kind of a critical deconstructive view, oh, yeah. a reductive view yeah. on everything. Yeah, and so that obviously translates into to geopolitical issues such as the Israel and, and Palestinian yeah. conflict. And, and I think for the young people, it's really you know they want to count for something. They mm-hmm. want their lives to be significant. And right. so if there's victims, right, if they've if they've had a victim painted for them, well they want to Yeah, they want justice. They want justice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They don't the problem is they don't have the whole story. No. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. 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 Or the story yeah. that they have is revisionist history. Yes. I think is the yeah. is the biggest yeah. issue. Yeah. So I mean you've got you've got folks marching, you know, from the river to the sea. I mean like the things that they're saying, what are they calling for? I mean, they're calling for, essentially, they might not even know it, but they're calling for the genocide. They're calling for the destruction of the nation of Israel. Yeah. Which is also God's people. Yeah. So it's a, but that's mind blowing to me, you know, in the West, what are we used to? Everyone that, you know, disagrees with us, we typically call them the progressive left. Mm-hmm. If they disagree with us, they're calling us what? Nazis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now yeah. they're calling for the destruction of the Jewish. St- I mean, yeah. Who's the Nazi now? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's, it you is. know. So from the river to the sea, that's a genocidal call for the destruction and removal of the nation of Israel. And again, people are arrows. The Bible says, you know, they're they kind of go the way their parents aim them, mm-hmm. the way their mentors train them. Uh, people don't tend to take a critical look at what they're what they're taught, you know? And so, you know, I don't want to label a large group of people as evil, but they're buying into an evil ideology. Now, again, backing up even beyond that, at our core, humanity, we're fallen in sin, we're evil, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a satanic component to this. Mm -hmm. Satan hates the nation of Israel. Yeah, there are doctrines of devils. There are doctrines of devils. And so, you know, this to, to get to a point like this, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's been building up for a long time. And for us as Bible believers, we have to get this right or mm-hmm. else we end up on the wrong side, right? Mm-hmm. We can find ourselves on the team that's actually in opposition to God Almighty. Yeah. Instead of sheep, we're, we're functioning like goats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, say, obviously... God is chastising the nation of Israel, right? I mean, for the last 2,500 years, this time, the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. This has not been a a smooth ride for the nation and the people of of Israel. Mm -hmm. But God loves the Jewish people. He loves the the nation of Israel. And so biblically, we know that God's not done with them. Scripture is clear. Romans 9 through 11, Paul's dealing with this whole issue of replacement theology. 
the question is, how did we get there? Like, if, if we know that there are believers, uh, Christians, good, maybe good people, lovers of the Lord, yeah. uh, on both sides of this issue, we have to ask ourselves, how does one get there? Like, what is the theology that got them to that place? Now, now many of the proponents of replacement theology are what we would call covenant mm-hmm. in their theological interpretation. So, so what does covenant theology mean, and how does it affect this subject matter? Yeah, so when you hear the term covenant theology as a theological system and approach to interpreting the Bible, the first thing you have to recognize is that the covenants that are referenced there are not actually tied to the covenants that you actually find in the Bible. Right, they're not, they're not biblical covenants, they're not but they're more like based. philosophical, yeah. theological covenants. They're yes. implied. Yeah, what they are, I mean, if you really examine them, they're, they're a man-made interpretational framework for an approach and understanding and explaining the Bible through what really are three core covenants. Mm -hmm. And they're viewed, the way they're explained is they're viewed as being theologically explicit. Like it's obvious on his face, this is the message of the Bible, even though they're not, these three covenants are not explicitly outlined in the Bible as they define it, Mm -hmm. right? So covenant theologians, they'll say, these three covenants are not explicitly presented they're admitting that the Bible doesn't actually talk about them the way they're explaining them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not, in other words, they're not biblically explicit, unlike, let's say, the seven covenants that you actually find in the Bible, which we cover in our sevens course in LFBI. So these three covenants or three assumptions they're based on the idea of salvation by unconditional election and divine reprobation. In other words, some people are just left in their default human nature and before the foundation of the world, they're etern- you know, eternally damned to, I mean, they're, they're damned mm-hmm. to destruction. Yeah, they've been know? chosen for one or the other. Yeah. So it's, if you think about it, it's a very fatalistic system. Uh, it's not one that's based on what the Bible says, book, chapter, verse. It doesn't take into account that God's providence, you know, Peter tells us that, that elects, you know, election is based on God's foreknowledge. Mm -hmm. Before the foundation of the earth, he can see you exercise your free will to choose Christ. And so he did the same. Before the foundation of the world, he exercised his free will and ordained us, elected us to all spiritual blessings, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, you know, God's providence and man's free will can actually be in harmony, right? Mm -hmm. They can, they can absolutely get along. So the problem is out of the gate, you have a man-made logic and theology that now is a, a framework or a lens that is forced on Scripture. It's through that lens that you now interpret everything in Scripture. And so the three covenants in covenant theology are, number one, the covenant of works. And they say this is the first covenant with Adam. The covenant with Adam, they say, is a covenant of works. Now, that would only make sense if Adam was created in a lost condition. In other mm-hmm. words, he has to work right in order to come out right. right. No, he, was cre- he wasn't created lost. He was created innocent. Yeah. So the reality is, is he could exercise his free will to obey the whole word of God that's outlined in just a couple verses in Genesis chapter 2, and mm-hmm. eventually that would have led to him eating of the tree of life. The framework doesn't um, distinguish between a pre-fallen state right. and a post-fallen state for yeah. Adam, which yeah. they're clearly in scripture, we know that they're completely different economies. Yeah, if it, yeah. it, would, it would make sense if, Alan, if Adam was created fallen, mm-hmm. right? He had a, if he started out with a sin nature, then a covenant of works, well, then that would, mm-hmm. that would, that would make perfect sense, right. right? But no, he's innocent. He's in relationship. He has, he has a right relationship with the Lord. Yeah, in some way, like you were saying, it, the covenant theology position begins with an assumption that that works are necessary and that that free will isn't even within the narrative, right? Like it's his free will that determined... Yeah, like Adam was going to have to right. rebel and eat that <laughs> yeah. fruit. That's and, odd. Yeah, yeah, like God, yeah, um, yeah. Like God, like God wanted set us him to up. sin. Yeah, yeah. That's odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Number two is the covenant of grace. So after the fall... The covenant of works is substituted with the covenant of grace, covenant of grace. And then number three, the covenant of redemption, redemption. And that, okay, it's again, it's not book, chapter, verse based, okay? 
it's an inference of the existence of a covenant that existed in eternity past within the mind and the members of the Godhead. And in terms of redemption, right, some were ordained to life, some to destruction. Mm-hmm. So they add the covenant of redemption and that, pre- that precedes both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And it allows no option or opportunity for free will. Right. You were set up from before creation itself to either be with God or be damned. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, fatalistic. And what they do is they make that last covenant, right? It's, it supersedes the, all of the covenants that you find in Scripture. Man, after the fall, you just see God start making covenants with man, particularly when you get to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And what they do then because this covenant supersedes all of the biblical covenants, then they can say that the promises that are made to Israel cannot really apply today except spiritually. So so in terms of covenant theology, literally, they say those covenants apply to spiritual Israel. And oh, by the way, now that's the church, Mm -hmm. which is wrong. But under that framework, now Israel is lost, but the church is in. We supersede them. We replace them. So, so basically what they do... Now, first of all, covenant theology, not everyone, not everyone who holds a covenant position buys the redemption part. So there are, there are Reformed Calvinistic covenant theology adherents, and then there are just like general covenant theology adherents that don't, that don't, that don't necessarily own the Calvinistic aspect. I have family members oh. like that. Oh, yeah. There's, but there's all different there's stripes. Different, yeah, yeah, different flavors to... of Kool-Aid. But yeah, but you're right yeah. though. I mean, what you're what it boils down to is this relationship between works and grace, and the conflation of the the economy of the nation of Israel and that of the church. In other words, now we yeah. just simply we thank you, Israel. We've just adopted all of the things that you refuse when you refuse yeah. the Christ. Now all yes. of those promises belong yeah. to us. You and blew now, it. Now right. God's moving on with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is why the uh, pro-Palestinian evangelical movement is gaining so much steam. 10 years ago or so, Christ at the Checkpoint uh, became a very big movement. It's gotten a lot of momentum over the last decade. And of course, there are issues with the treatment of Palestinians at Mm -hmm. the hands of the Israeli government, but there's nothing there that would warrant the reaction that we're seeing today. I mean, the xenophobia, the hostility, just the demand for Israel to just what roll over and die, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which is what they've asked for. That's what they're yeah Outright. from the river to the sea. Right. If Palestine if Palestine is going to be free, it means no Jew. Yeah. Period. Right. So again, you've got people who love God mm-hmm. on, on, on the opposite side from us on this issue, uh, but there is, I think, at the root of it, there is a deception in, uh, at work, right? Uh, it's a spiritual battle. And one element of this spiritual battle is all about what God is going to do with the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. Satan obviously hates Israel. So he hates the Jew, right? The the devil is against God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. So they'll call covenant theology fulfillment theology, Mm -hmm. right? Those covenants are fulfilled in us as the bride of Christ, we call it, we label it replacement theology because that's what it really right. is. Yeah. They're replacing and it it has a demonic agenda underneath it, right? That Israel is completely replaced by the church. Now you have to take plain promises in scripture that have a literal meaning mm-hmm. and you have to now allegorize them yeah. to make them, to force that to now mean, to mean the church. Right. And the actual Abrahamic covenant begs to differ with the whole system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> God promised that land to those people forever. Right. Yeah. Was, and, and that's, how do you get around that? I, I mean, can take you to book, chapter, verse, yeah. right? Yeah. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. I mean, it's, the scripture is very clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the only thing you really can do with that is say, well, um, God said that, but he changed his mind. Like he divor- he divorced his people, oh, and yeah. so now yeah. those promises yeah. still apply. Yeah. They just apply to yeah. like you do have to do some gymnastics yeah. to get there, and you have to you have to call God. And he did divorce his people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, what do you do with Hosea? Right, two days going to just really be rough. And again, Peter tells you how to view, per, you know, 
prophecy, a, a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Two days, it's going to be pretty rough, but on the third day, he, he'll, he'll revive us. Mm -hmm. and I don't know. Right now, we're recording this in 2023. I think we're on the verge of the third day. Yeah. So I think, I think it's important for us to ask this question. Are there examples from Scripture, or at least maybe give us an example, where someone from a covenant theological perspective might draw a false conclusion about Israel? Like, give me, give me an example of one of these conflations where they, we see something in Scripture um, that is, is now misapplied and, yeah. and, and, and forfeited to the church. Well, I shouldn't be able to do it at all. I shouldn't no, be able to no, give no, you an no. example, yeah. but people do it all the time. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I think the error that they make is they take an allegorical approach to Scripture. And with that, you know, they've got latitude. And stake, instead of taking a grammatical, Historical, literal, right, yeah. a literal interpret, you know, the grammatical, literal meaning of Scripture should trump everything. Mm -hmm. Well, if I substitute human reasoning for that... And I take an allegorical approach to interpretation. Well, now I can make, I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say. I mean, if if people who interpret the Bible allegorically, if they were honest, they'd be like, "No, bro, the Bible doesn't say what it means." Mm -hmm. Like they just come right out and say right. it. Right. I mean, you're a rube to think it actually means what it says. Right. How unsophisticated and unintelligent you mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. See the promises that are labeled for the nation of Israel. Uh, that's really for the church because of Israel's failure. I mean, who crucifies their Messiah and expects that to work out for them, right? So now, because we supersede them, because we replace them, we're going to view all these passages as promises to the church, mm -hmm. true spiritual Israel. Yeah. And so there's many, uh, many passages taken in their context. They don't show they do not show that God's done with the nation of Israel. Right. Yeah, when, okay. they're, when they're put within the context yes. of the whole passage. Right. Or, or if you take a verse yeah. out of context, well, then, sure. yeah, you can make a case for anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, let's just look at the first one for sake of time. In Matthew 21, uh, we were just talking about this passage in our LFBI Matthew class the other day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Matthew 21, 43 says, Jesus says, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And so people will look at that and say, aha, see, Jesus himself says he's, he's done with you mm. and he's moving on, right? Mm. And if you looked at that verse alone, you could say that God was done with the nation of Israel, except for the fact if you just keep reading the book of Matthew, right, just keep going. In Matthew 23, 39, he explicitly says, again, there's no church revealed. There's no idea of the bride of Christ yet. Right. It is a Jewish king who has come as the Messiah of the Jewish people. And what does he say to them? In Matthew 23, 39, he says, I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's saying, here's a group of religious rulers that are rejecting him. They're going to right. lead the people to do the same. Right. And you will repent. You will receive me as your Messiah. Right. I yeah, mean, there's a day coming. There's a day where, coming. Where you, will, yeah. where you will see me for who I really am. Absolutely. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 19, he gives a parable that shows, uh, Luke 19, 11 through 27, shows you that the kingdom of God does not come until after a ki the king returns from a far country, right? There's some time spent in a far country, Luke 19, 12. And then after his return, he rewards his subjects and he judges his enemies. Well, that's a perfect description of Christ at the right hand of the Father, mm -hmm. the church age unfolding, followed by the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom with Israel at the head of the nations, just like the Bible prophesies, right? He will reward and he will judge exactly as we see throughout scripture. Yeah. On top of that, okay, let's think about what comes after that. The religious rulers do reject the Messiah. They lead the people to the same. Yep. Crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us, upon our children. All right, mm. like, okay, so they do that. He dies, he's buried. On the third day, he rises for 40 days. He's cluing the disciples in with many infallible proofs yeah. from, from Scripture. Yep. He's showing them all of this had to happen the way it had to happen Here's what's coming. Yeah, okay. teaching them about the kingdom of God. Yes. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they come together in verse 6. And the disciples ask him, saying, 
Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, so they believe with all their heart, God's not done with the nation of Israel. Right. He said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. So he doesn't correct their biblical assumption. He just tells them, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. It's not for you to know mm -hmm. when the kingdom will be restored. Okay, instead, verse 8, get to work. You yeah. shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Get to work sharing the gospel to the nations. Yeah. Right? So it, he doesn't correct their biblical assumption. He just says, get to work. Yeah. What's present in that entire story is that he's been spending 40 days with, with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God, about the spiritual kingdom, and their objectives and initiatives. Like, you're going to go, and this is what you're going to teach. Yeah. You're going to teach that the Spirit of God can enter into any person, yeah. right? And you're going to preach yeah. and you're going to see people of all nations yeah. coming to know me. Now that's your objective. That's that's what you're supposed to do. And then they're like, well, what about the kingdom that you've been talking about for Israel? You know, they're asking him to kind of explain clearly yeah. what he's been teaching yeah. throughout all of When Matthew. are we going to get on those 12 thrones? Right. Yeah. That's what we want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when does, when does this all get resolved? And, and, yeah. and really, I mean, he's reminding them in some ways, he told some of them, like Peter, that like you're gonna you're gonna actually die for my my namesake. Yeah. So go do your job and let yeah. let God the Father worry about um, when it's time for me to return yeah. and set up. You know. And even at that point, they don't understand the idea of the church age. No, no, right. Not That's fully. revealed through the Apostle Paul. Right. What the agenda is going to be for the next two thousand mm -hmm. years? You mm -hmm. know, um, they they know God is not done with the nation right. of Israel. Yeah. 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 Really, really important. Here's the bottom line. Of all the passages that are used, right, in all of those quote unquote proof texts for replacement theology, if you were to take them without the mountain, to, I mean, just the mountain of scripture that promises that God's not done with the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. well, then you could make a case for replacement theology. If you take the Bible in its whole, then you cannot, if it's, if the words, say what they mean, and they actually mean what they say, then you cannot miss that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He will fulfill absolutely every promise he's made to them. Mm -hmm. When I interviewed um, Hudson Smelly not too long ago, we were talking about um, about Calvinism. Yeah, you guys went all through this. Yeah. We talked about some of this, yeah, and, and yeah. you know, he mentioned that he had a family member growing up that refused to refer to the nation of Israel in, when he was talking about the Bible. This is a believer he always replaced the word Israel with the church. Mm -hmm. So he was correcting scripture just as a lifestyle. On the fly. On yeah. the fly. Yeah. So anytime yeah. the Bible referred... Yeah. And you know what? That's super honest. Yeah. At least that's at least <laughs> yeah. he's being honest with That doesn't his... mean what it says. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and that's ultimately what we're talking about here. So uh, the next question I have for you is, is how does adherence to supersessionist views uh, impact the church's view of God's economy and, and ultimately our view of Israel, both you know, spiritually, politically, and sociolo sociologically, how do these ideas work themselves out in, in real time? And, and so I want to kind of close that loop to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, is how do, the, how do these covenant views and these replacement views come back to practical living and affect the way that the Christian perceives and understands God's people? Yeah, the nation of Israel gets, I mean, they're viewed in a very negative light, aren't mm -hmm. they? Because again, if you're going to replace a grammatical, literal interpretation of scripture with what are really presuppositions that you're forcing on the text in order to derive an application or outcome that steals the promises of God away from the nation of Israel, right? In other words, if in, if in, by the time you get to Acts chapter two, let's say, if my view now is that the church, the bride of Christ is spiritual Israel, then all the promises, the covenants, the blessings that the Bible ascribes to Israel, they're taken from the Jew, given to the church because we've replaced them. Uh, so the view is that the nation state of Israel today, the group of Israelis in the land, well, that's not the Israel of the Bible. Mm -hmm. that's, just a that's just another secular nation state. But the promises of the Bible that were, for, well, that's to us, but all the curses, well, you guys, those still are <laughs> yeah, you, on you. Yeah, you get to keep those. You get to keep the curses because, well, you you crucified your Messiah, bro. Well, and the, hey, that's a huge yeah. point 
Because I think a lot of times you'll hear people say that very statement. Oh, well, yeah. it's the Jew- I mean, clearly it was the yeah. Jews that crucified. Except they couldn't do it without the Romans. Right. Yeah. Right? They never got it done without <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and not only that, spiritually speaking, yeah. past, present, future, every human being crucified Christ. He came for sin. He came, yeah. he came to deliver yeah. sin. So it wasn't he just the Romans. He died for the sins of the babies that aren't even born yet. That's right. That's right. Their sin put Christ on yeah. the cross. So that's really bad logic to start it's throwing the Jews logic. under the bus yeah. uh, for Christ's yeah. death. That's but it's super convenient. For a Nazi. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. It's super convenient for a Nazi. <laughs> no, let's not. And... Uh. Yeah. I, I mean, it is. Lord help us. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. a tough deal. The typical reform view is that the Jew had it coming because they rejected and crucified Christ. So mm-hmm. famous Reformation dude, Martin Luther. Who we love to hype up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man, did a, lot of, did a lot of cool stuff, man. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 1543 wrote a pamphlet called On the Jews and Their Lies. <laughs> They're a miserable and accursed people. So he's... I mean, he's speaking very xenophobically, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. He calls them names, you know, fools, miserable, thieves, robber, calls them the great vermin of humanity. So here's what he wrote. He, here's a quote from the book. Luther, speaking of the Jewish people, he said, For such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they, the Jewish people, assuredly have erred and gone astray. Even a child can comprehend this. For one dare not regard God as so cruel that he would punish his own people so long, so terrible, so unmercifully. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. And so, you know, Luther ends up, he tried to convert the Jews to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he comes to the conclusion that the Jewish synagogues need to be destroyed set their schools on fire, burn their prayer books, right? Rabbis are forbidden to preach, uh, burn their homes, steal their property, their money. Um, You know, he said they should be drafted into forced labor. I mean, like, Mm. there's one guy that's, I mean, I, I haven't doubled. I don't have two sources for this. Um, I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't. I haven't taken the time to, to nail this down, but one source said that he advocated for the killing of the Jewish people, mm. and, and he said that we're at fault for not slaying them. So it yeah. just doesn't get any worse than that. So you know, just like you're it, at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, now, and spiritually, it, you know, it's really it's really interesting too that a contemporary uh, a contemporary Bible English Bible right, um, that is not King James, um, conflates kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. For sure. Yeah. So it, what it does when we say that, what we mean is that it erases the the, the redemption of Israel narrative completely just by changing it's the phrase. It's all phrases. the kingdom of God. Everything's yeah. kingdom of God. Yeah. So now yeah. sp- spirit, yeah. the spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom are the same. Yeah. And so now there's no distinction between... What yeah. the, the, the disciples were clearly asking about is about the kingdom that Israel was promised. And so they yeah. do that, on on again, to, to expand that, they do that with all things related between the church and Israel. And interestingly enough, um, from their perspective, they even take a Old Testament Jewish approach to dealing with Christendom. In other words... Um, there's not a spiritual answer for Israel. There has to be a physical one. So we have to, the only thing we can do is function the way an Old Testament Jew would, and that is to eradicate the enemy. <laughs> like, like th- there's a, again, this conflation just continues to expand and it results in people functioning, not spiritually, mm-hmm. not, not, not prayerfully, no. not um, in devotion to the Great Commission, but in devotion to a physical agenda where there's something socio-political that must be done uh, to deal with the enemies of God, right? You can end up grossly adrift if you don't have a dispensational approach to the Bible. Right, yeah. yeah. It's very loose and slippery footing. Yeah. Um, so explain, explain supersessionism historically, uh, because this is a, this is a historic position. Mm-hmm. Um, may, maybe you can walk us through the last two thousand years um, and tell us a little bit how how this came to be. Well, I mean, it's 
like we just said, and I mean, Paul in Romans nine through eleven, he's addressing re- replacement theology. Mm-hmm, right. I mean, the, the past two thousand years has been rough yeah. for the people of Israel, mm-hmm. right? For the Jewish people, uh, Ignatius in the first century, he taught that those that partook of the Passover were partakers with those that killed Jesus, just a martyr. Right? Claimed that actually he was second century. Uh, claimed that God's covenant with Israel wasn't valid and that the Gentiles had replaced the Jews, right? So it's there from the beginning. And you just mm-hmm. come on down origin, uh, you get down to the third century, uh, He very anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. Um, he said that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. The Council of Nicaea, Christians can't eat with Jews. Uh, they can't marry a Jew. You can't bless a Jew. <laughs> you know, if we catch you observing the Sabbath. Which again, Christians aren't under the law, but we catch you observing the Sabbath, you're in trouble, bro. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. so there's uh, all down through church history, you see this. Um, Augustine, he said that the Jews deserve death. So this would be in the, what, the fourth century. They deserve death. They're destined, he said, to wander the earth as a witness to the victory of the church over the synagogue. And so, you know, part of the idea of passion plays was was part of that display, and and those historically were used to gen up a lot of anti-Semitism. Oh, yeah, I never right? really thought a, about that or the history yeah, of that. They they were res- Jewish people hate passion plays mm. <laughs> because historically they've been used as justification for it's pogroms. propaganda. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, a passion play done correctly is just telling the story of the right, Bible. Yeah. Um, you gloss over, you know, historically people keep glossing over Rome's part right. in killing the creator. Like look at Pontius Pilate. He just looks so innocent over there washing his hands. <laughs> he's, he's staying out of it. But look at the crowd. <laughs> Crucify him. Crucify him. Without, you know, yeah. just disfigured faces. And, right. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. that's rough. I never really thought about that. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. I'm Craig Warner. I'm the kids pastor at First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, Ohio, and a recent graduate of the Living Faith Bible Institute. LFBI was a great chance for me to grow, to learn, to continue my education without having to take time away from my family or my own ministry. In fact, being able to take classes at my own pace ultimately allowed me to be more effective in my ministry. I can't tell you how invaluable it is for LFBI to be structured in such a way that you're encouraged to implement what you learn in ministry and not just sit on the information for yourself. It was a great experience to hear from a variety of instructors uh, from other ministries and parts of the country in tandem with serving my local church. Through LFBI, I received a library of resources that I'll be able to reference for the rest of my life. It was curated by the experience and the countless hours of study put in by the instructors. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all those that invested in and equipped me for the work of the Lord. In addition to the information and resources, I was able to develop relationships with so many of the students and the instructors that have impacted my life and the way that I view ministry. There was a lot of info to retain, and there's still a lot that I don't know, but perhaps the greatest takeaway from LFBI is the confidence to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth so that I can be certain of what God says for myself. This is an approach to the Bible that will stay with me for the rest of my life. So if anyone's interested in learning what God's word has to say, I'd encourage you to sign up for the Living Faith Bible Institute. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. 1492, uh, King Ferdinand said that all Spanish Jews should be banned from Spain. He said that Jews were a danger to Christianity and roughly 150,000 Jewish people lost their homes. They were expelled from the country. So it's that kind of that kind of just hatred for the Jewish people, it's nothing new. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing anything new today. Right. In 1924, Hitler's statement is, I believe that today I'm acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God. He said he announced that the most important work that he's doing is that Christians, that, that the most important work that Christians could undertake is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once for all. 
you know, mm. like what we're seeing today is, is nothing new. I mean, Hitler to take that position, it's like, you know, maybe he read Luther, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. They don't sound too different. I <laughs> they guess. don't sound too different. Yeah. That's, that's no. tough. That's tough to, to reckon in our hearts because, yeah. um, we hate to think, uh, especially of, of heroes of the faith, um, as being, um, off on this. Greg Axe and his, um, uh, course on church history will talk about great men. Mm-hmm. You know, great men aren't always wise. Yeah, they're still great men. Right. You know, yeah. um, you you just people were not as woke and politically correct as people are today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, people were pretty blunt, and and uh, Martin Luther would have been no exception to right. that. And you know, he had a improper hermeneutic that led him to. Right. Wrong conclusions. Yeah. 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 Um, so explain how this, this, you know, concludes eschatologically. You know, um, we say, when we say eschatology, what we're referring to is the end times and the way that the, the entirety of the scriptural mm-hmm. narrative wraps up. Like, like, how does God end the story? Uh, what does the, you know, we know that he's the victor, but, but how, how does that victory unfold? And, um, and so Covenant theology lends itself towards a certain eschatological endpoint. Can you yeah. explain that to us? Yeah. So most people in that camp, they either end up post-millennial mm-hmm. or amillennial, right? Um, maybe maybe we really shine for a thousand years and then Jesus shows up, or it's just this thing's been going all along, and at some point, you know, once the once the whole earth has been brought to Christ. Well, then Christ is really ruling mm-hmm. already. You know, some amillennialists will say, "Yeah, at some point in the future, Jesus shows up." You know, mm-hmm. but basically, either way, it's we bring in the kingdom. Right? Christ doesn't bring in the king. We bring in the kingdom. Uh, we've been, you know, like the amillennial. We've been bringing in the kingdom for the last two thousand years. Yeah, which lends itself to social justice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you're not worried about the gospel as much as you it's a are social gospel. The social gospel. Mm-hmm. That's typically where they end up. And so, but it is everything from preaching the gospel, but but mostly the social gospel, you know, giving aid, um, being good guys in the name of Jesus. Uh, that's going to bring us to a time of peace and prosperity such that whether it's literally or figuratively, mm-hmm. Jesus is reigning and ruling. And that view doesn't have a literal physical nation of Israel with a literal physical throne from which Christ rules the earth, mm-hmm. from the capital state, Jerusalem or Israel, right? Mm-hmm. That's not part of it, right? The Jewish nation is not in the culmination of all things. Um, they're not considered in that. Right. Okay. So re- again, replacement theology makes the mistake of failing to see what Paul's addressing in Romans nine through eleven. Mm-hmm that God has temporarily set aside the Jewish people. He's chastising them, right? During which time the gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the world. I mean, the Gentile nations are hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they fail to see the restoration of Israel as God's covenant people, mm-hmm. right? That's, I think, the, the mistake that's made. Yeah, yeah. Let's address the contrast to that then. So, you know, you made reference to Romans chapter 9 through 11. I think we should hit on that because that highlights the dispensationalist view that God is not done with his people. And so maybe you could explain that and, and how uh, we regard Israel in this, in this storyline. Yeah, so how I would explain the dispensationalist view in terms of God's dealings with the nation of Israel in prophecy? I would just read you Romans chapter 11, mm-hmm. right? In verse 11, he's talking about Israel. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Mm-hmm. And now, if words say what they mean and they mean what they say, well, then that's my view. God's not done with the Jew. No way. God forbid. Now, through their fall, in verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? Like, why are you and I believers in Jesus Christ? According to the Apostle Paul, it's to make the Jew, as a people, jealous over what we have with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, if the fall, verse, verse 12 of the Jewish people, if that falls out to the riches for the rest of the world, and the, 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 the diminishing of them is the riches of the Gentiles, look at what he says, how much more their fullness. Yeah. God's not done with them. 
He says, I speak to you, Gentiles, insomuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, and magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. During this time of chastisement of Israel nationally, there's nothing that keeps a Jew individually from receiving Christ. Mm -hmm. I mean, he comes out of a nationalistic paradigm scripturally into the body and the bride of Christ at that point during this dispensation or age of grace. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to see some of them come to Christ. But then he goes on, verse 15, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, the Gentile nations, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Mm. I mean, it can't be any more clear. God Mm -hmm. is not done with the Jewish people. Now, verses 16 and 17, this would be another proof text for the replacement theology crowd. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So what they're teaching is, is that Israel is a nation naturally broken off. Uh, those that believe can move forward with the bride, but really Israel and the church are one tree. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. There's a root, Jesus, that supports both. Right. Right? But their view from this passage is that physical Israel is out and spiritual Israel, the church, is in. But Paul immediately corrects this. I mean, mm-hmm. he already dealt with it in verse 15. What shall the receiving of them be? So he's using this analogy of a tree, Israel, the, the natural branch that comes off the root of Christ, broken off. Right. Time of chastisement, the unnatural branch, the wild branch, the Gentile nations of the world, we get to partake, praise the Lord. What should our response be? Down with Israel. No. Verse 18, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Wilt thou say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in? Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Why? For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Uh, In dispensational theology, that's all based on the parable. I mean, it's an incredible parable that outlines what's taking place. You've got a rich man and a steward. The steward fails. There's a judgment seat. He has Mm -hmm. to give it account, and then he's replaced. Yeah. And you just see that unfold from Adam all the way down to the church. Mm Mm-hmm. In a very real sense, what do you have? The rapture of the church is the removal of the church over failure in her dispensation, yeah. removal to judgment. Right. So the unnatural branch, that time, the church age is over, bro. Yeah. And now God's attention is focused back on the nation of Israel. So behold, this the, verse 22, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Now watch this, verse 23. And they also, the Jewish people, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. Future tense. Mm -hmm. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, the Jewish people, which be the natural branches, the Jewish nation, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That ought to be a wake-up call to anybody that's buying into replacement theology. But again, if the words don't mean what they say, well then, you know, I guess people are still sleeping at night. Mm. And that's a shame. Mm -hmm. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Once... The times of the Gentiles are over, right? Once at the end of the church age, God comes to shut down the Antichrist and that final offensive, that final ultimate expression of replacement theology, the er Mm. eradication of the Jew and the Jewish state. Jesus rescues them. Verse 26, and so all Israel, again, we're talking about national Israel here, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they, the nation of Israel, right? They are beloved for the father's sake. I mean, 
what would the dispensational view, view be? Romans 11. I mean, yeah. it can't be any more plain. National Israel will be rescued by Christ. Mm -hmm. God is not done with the Jewish people. All of these promises, they're future tense promises. Mm -hmm. Mark it down, they will happen. You know, yeah. there's there's no way around it. Right. Praise the Lord. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's super plain. Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's hard for me to even imagine that someone could read that and not completely understand. But again, they have they have to take an allegorical view. And yes. there, there are explanations. It's not plain if the words don't mean what they yeah. say. Yeah. And 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 actually, a lot of reformed or covenant people are very divided on even how to oh yeah what to do with this. Yeah. 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 They they yeah. they have many many different variant explanations yeah. for for how to deal yeah. with what's super plain. It's like independent Baptists. There's yeah. all kinds of stripes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. which I think you know I think is important is important for us yeah. to understand is that yeah. um you know speaking of of independent Baptists, um they've taken many you know. People have taken many different views. Baptists have taken many different views on this over time. And so, you know, whether Baptist or Methodist or, or whatever. Presbyterian. You know, yeah, yeah. Protestant yeah. flavor that you yeah. are. Um, what happens if you don't agree with scripture? What, what happens if you are covenant in your view? How, what's your determinant as, a, as it concerns Israel in the future? What, what, what is the natural conclusion that you draw? Yeah, so people on both sides of it are obviously divided. You know, be like back in what the early 1900s, you've got Clarence Larkin making those sweet charts. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he's declaring that there will be a Jewish state, mm -hmm. and people just mocking him over it. Oh, well, to this very day. Well, I don't know how after 19 May, what is it? May 14th, 1948. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. what do you do with? You know, for me, I. This is kind of a little bit of a sidebar. I don't know how anybody isn't a Bible believer after 1948. Yeah. People used to say, it's like, this has never happened before in the history of the world, that a, a nation born in a day, an ethnic people in a land speaking their own language, like, in a can a nation be born in a day? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 1948, baby. Yeah, May and so, so what Sam is referring to is that, is <laughs> yeah. throughout two, the last 2,000 years, really since the captivity, I mean, before that, yeah. the Jewish people have been dispersed throughout the earth. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they still are. And they still are to some yeah. degree. Uh, but, but... I think I read a stat that half the Jewish population is in Israel, half isn't. Yeah, which is actually staggering. Is, I mean, you could probably yeah. say that about any nation. Like, you know, <laughs> just about. Like, there's, I don't know about there's a lot of nations. China and are, India, those are pretty big populations. Those are big populations, <laughs> but there are other places that yeah. are looking to, oh, their folks are absolutely. looking to get out. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there's yeah. probably half of Mexico yeah. in, in yeah. the U.S. now. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, 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 I read another report, though, that said Venezuelans were leaving Chicago to go back to Venezuela because it was so bad in Chicago. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. I don't but, I, I, but people so, are all over the world. Yeah, people but, are all but, over but the world. There was yeah. no there was no nation for Israel to return home to. And so basically yeah. the Christian uh, you know uh argument or the division that we're referring to within between replacement theology and those from a dispensationalist perspective has always yes. been, well, this could this isn't even possible. What are you yeah. talking about? In um the upcoming LFBI class, Baptist history, recent Baptist history. Uh, one of the textbooks that we're using was written by Hawkins. I think the name of the book is called In the Name of God. And mm -hmm. he talks about um, the, you know, in terms of Baptist history, people on both sides of the camp, the amillennialists versus the dispensationalists, and how, um, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention was opposed to the idea of recognizing the state of Israel. So mm -hmm. you got guys like Truett who they're amillennialists, they're full of hope and optimism that the gospel is going to win. And, you know, so they're not taking a literal view right. of the millennial day of the Lord, Christ bringing in the kingdom. And then you guys, you got guys like Norris yeah. who are dispensational in their view and, and 100% knowing that there will be a day when God will restore the nation state of Israel yeah, because prophecy declares it so. Right. Incredible. And so, in fact, I've, I've got a quote from that book here in front of me, and I'll read it if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. It, so here we have Norris, who is really dispensationally and in terms of independent Baptists, is kind of a forebearer. Uh, you know, we were, we're not proponents of everything that Norris stood for, uh, particularly in terms of some of his behavior, 
but doctrinally, um, he, he's a part of our uh, heritage. Yeah. And so, so this is what the book says, premillennial eschatology brought to Norris an urgency in his message and an adherence to the text not commonly found in proponents of postmillennialism. From Truett's eschatological perspective, the world was going to get better and better until Christ's coming. Norris held to the worldview that instead of getting better and better, the world was constantly declining in lostness, morality, and global conflict. In fact, and this is the thing I think you were making reference to, in fact, when President Harry Truman, a Southern Baptist himself, faced the decision of whether to recognize the new state of Israel, he turned to Norris, who had a huge megachurch at the time, world's probably largest church, not true it, for counsel. Um, Israel plays a prominent role and is is at the very heart of the premillennial thought and practice. Late in 1947, Norris wrote to President Truman laying out the scriptural, ethical, and moral grounds for the legitimacy of a Jewish state. In the letter, he bases his argument on biblical texts such as Deuteronomy 33 through 5, which shows that God was in a covenant relationship with the Jews. A few months later, Truman invited Norris to Washington to participate in a conference on Israel and the conflict in the Middle East. Norris followed this invitation with a letter to the president encouraging the shipment of arms to Israel to aid in their coming conflict with the surrounding Arab states over over their statehood. Following a vast exchange of correspondence between the two men, Norris wrote, a congratulatory letter thanking the president for siding with the covenant people yeah. <laughs> and and their and their god-given inheritance on May 14th 1948 the new state of Israel proclaimed its independence within minutes of this proclamation president harry s truman extended de facto recognition making the united states the first nation to recognize the new and independent state of israel and so whether we like it or How not cool is that? it's amazing it's an amazing yeah. story yeah. uh this dispensational premillennial view, uh, understanding that the nation of Israel is God's promised people, mm-hmm. uh, is really uh, tantamount to a lot of our foreign diplomacy, and 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 this and again this sits at set the, the heart course for it, right? Yeah. Set the course for it, but this is the heart of a lot of the contention right now, yeah. right? These yeah. two different perspectives of yeah. of Israel. One yeah. is kind of a is a, an anti-Zionist position, and the other one is a Zionist position. So how you interpret your Bible mm-hmm. determines whether you're on God's side mm-hmm. or on the side of what what is the force that wants to destroy right. the Jewish people. Right. To, to murder a race. I mean, uh, it's, mm, it, yeah, it's, 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 tough. it's tough. But how cool is it that a forebearer, one of the really most prominent forebearers of the independent Baptist church movement was used of God to help set the policy of our nation Mm -hmm. toward Israel. Right. Kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's, I guess my, my final question, I think we could use this to kind of wrap up what we've been talking about in the political moment that we find ourselves in, why is a proper view of Israel just so important to our worldview, to our vantage point, to to the way in which we behave, act, vote, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, just like I started, we want to we want to be on God's side. Mm-hmm. We want to we want our opinions, our thoughts, our perspectives to be to be God's. Right. So, man, I love the nation of Israel. Mm. I love them. Why? God loves them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know He's not done with them because He said He's not done with them. I look forward to Zechariah twelve ten. The day when, I mean, he declares it this way. He says, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Mm -hmm. I know nationally the Jewish state of Israel, it's functioning as a secular state. Right. But the day will come when the 12 tribes of Israel will recognize they crucified their Messiah and they will be broken over it. Mm-hmm. Right? Right now, absolutely, biblically, I know they're in rebellion. They're blind. Against Christ. They're blind. They're hardened in hearts. And, and uh, man, I just, I long for the day when they repent and they receive their Messiah. Mm-hmm. God promises that will happen. Why wouldn't I be excited about that? I, in the meantime, recognize the promise of Genesis chapter 12. God's first commitment to Abraham is to leave his Gentile nation, go to the promised land. And then he says in verse two, I will make thee, I will make of thee 
a great nation, and I will bless thee, and, I, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so that's, man, I want to be a blessing to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And no, that's not just a transactional view of that promise in scripture, right? That, that blessing, uh, that blessing the Hebrew would cause God to bless us. Mm -hmm. That's not just some transactional promise that I'm just doing that because God promised, like it's gonna bless me somehow. Right. No, that's agreeing with God over his word. This is what God said. Yeah. This is God's perspective on this on this dynamic, right? Mm. I, I want to agree with God's word and his will for Israel, his chosen people. And so if even if there was no blessing for us, if God says, bless, yeah, bless have my heart. Yeah, have, yeah, bless my people. I want to, I want to be all about it. And so we I recognize this is the church age. Israel is in, as a nation is in rebellion against her Messiah. Well, that doesn't mean we can't win individuals to Christ. Mm -hmm. This is the age of grace. Right. Okay. So I'm all about it. We support it. Our, our local church supports organizations that minister and aid in the name of Jesus, right? They give the gospel of Jesus Christ, man, praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, another, another perspective would be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, biblically, we know that Jerusalem is made a burdensome stone, right? The Jerusalem problem, mm -hmm. the Middle East problem. Okay, so I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem. When I know for a fact it's going to get worse, right. what are we really doing? Psalms 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Mm -hmm. Well, I love Jerusalem. Even without the prosper promise, we want to do it because God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But man, praise the Lord. I want God's blessing yeah. <laughs> on my life and ministry. Right. So what am I doing? Well, there will be no there will be no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace comes and sets down his rule, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, we pray for Christ's return. The last prayer in our Bible, Revelation 22, 20, the promise is surely I come. So here's the last prayer. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Mm. Man, we ought to be praying. And I get it. Like we, you know, churches that are evangelistically active, there's a part of us that's like, oh, Lord, if we can just have a few more days, if we mm -hmm. can just have a few more weeks, a few more months, right. just a couple more years. Yeah. Because we have people that we love that we want to bring in. Yeah, we like want Abraham them to be part of the harvest. Huh? It's the heart of Abraham with Sodom. Yes. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. Like yeah. there's a part of us that's, that's like, if we could just work a little bit longer... Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the longing of the bride is for the bridegroom, right? Right, and and if you take if you step back and you take a just the huge big picture dispensational view of what's taking place, the church is failing in her mission. And mm -hmm. the longer we go, the worse a job the church overall is doing. Yeah. right. It just gets the, our performance is worse and worse and worse. The stewardship's failing. The steward is failing in her stewardship. And what stops the cycle of insanity is Christ returning right. and setting down his rule. Yeah, making all things right. Like the best solution for anything is even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. That person that we're desperate for in prayer that's refusing, the, maybe they don't understand the gospel. After the rapture of the church, well, during the time of tribulation, it's going to be one of the greatest times of revival in the history of the planet. Mm -hmm. That number that's sacrificed like martyred for their faith, you can't number them. Right. The tribulation saints that die for their faith, like that's still better than an eternity apart from Christ in hell. Yeah, yeah. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, uh, yeah. lots to say. Yeah. We managed to get it done in a very abbreviated amount of time. Yeah. Um, man, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for um, your love for God's word and just your willingness to sit down with us and to talk about a tough subject. I mean, yeah. you you should be getting ready right now for a trip to Israel, and you're and you yeah. can't. You I can't. can't take people to Israel if bombs are falling. Right, that'd so, be that would be bad. LFBI usually <laughs> every year or two does a a uh, you know we op open invitation to the students of LFBI. Hey, come with us to Israel. Yeah, get credit for for Israel history class and and see yeah. the the Holy Land and. And this well, the year, last two times we've tried. So the last time we were going to go, COVID hit mm -hmm. and everything was canceled. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get to go. 
uh, we finally, things are opened up, and so we made plans for this year. War breaks out. It may be that the next tour that we take is free. Yeah. <laughs> because it'll be like, if Jesus brings us to the Holy Land, well then, you know, you can take the tour. He'll, he'll cover all the travel costs. You know? So <laughs> and it'll he'll never be, be cheaper than that. He'll be on the throne and it'll be a much yeah. better, I, I bet it'll yeah. be a prettier view. Yeah. 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 Uh, Sam, thank you for the time that you yeah. spent. And yeah. uh, we're always grateful to have you on the show. Yeah. Love you, bro. Love you too. Yeah. And we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. Big deal, a uh, big topic. Uh, we're glad that you sat with us and, and listened in, and, and hopefully it was informative to your perspective. Hopefully, hopefully you're beginning to understand the value of a dispensational view of the Word of God. And, and so if this is something you're hearing, maybe this is for the first time, or maybe you've heard your pastor talk about dispensationalism before, make reference to it. And it's something that you want to learn more about. The good news is that LFBI offers a class called Dispensationalism and Systematic Theology, 16 weeks that helps you to better understand this approach to God's Word, uh, and then uh, gives you and empowers you uh, to have the ability to look at God's Word uh, rightfully, dividing Scripture, using Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture in order to draw conclusions that God wants us to draw. And so we want to invite you to do that. Uh, we mentioned the Sevens class uh, today. That'd be a great class to take, a great introductory class. Uh, another class that we mentioned today was Baptist History. That's coming up next semester. And so if you want to learn more about the heritage of Baptists and our distinctives, join us for that as well. Uh, but there's so many cool classes. We want you to learn your Bible. We want you to grow in your faith. We want you to be a, a, a better a greater minister uh, within your local church context. Uh, we believe that that's what God wants to do. Uh, we love you and we're thankful for you. Visit lfbi.org if you've got questions or you want to learn more about the school. And with that said, we'll see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, Please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.